0: Every ultimate experience Ireland has to offer is always within reach with a 182 BMW. The ultimate bowl of chowder, seasoned with Atlantic salt air, the ultimate swim spot, even the ultimate scenic shortcut that happily takes way, way longer. Experience the ultimate with a 24-hour test drive from your local BMW retailer, because owning your new BMW is always within reach. Visit bmw182.ie. I just completed a show about China that I think you'll find interesting with two experts that have been studying China for over 50 years apiece. And in it, we talked about their history a bit, but also their strategy today, economic, uh, military, and otherwise. We talked about things like the One Belt, One Road strategy, South China Sea another great one, this Maritime Silk Road, which is the, which is the road in the ocean, uh, and learn a lot about their plans for the future and what it means that uh, they just announced that their president, Qi will now be president for life and what it means for us here in the United States. Fascinating question. Is China a big threat or are they just another trading partner?
1: Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. Featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things.
0: Welcome. I'm here today to talk with you again about China and joining me for round two of a very interesting conversation we had a few weeks ago to talk even in more depth, are Pat Malloy, who was 10 years a commissioner of the Bipartisan China Commission, and Stefan Halper, who's a professor of international studies at Cambridge University in Cambridge, England. So welcome back,
1: guys. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Bill. Uh,
0: we call this round two, uh, based on kind of the earlier conversation and all the content we've got here. I, this may be round two of round 32. I right? yeah. 32. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, a few months ago, a few weeks ago, uh, China... Announced that uh, Xi Jinping, in the uh, the Communist Party, in the Great Hall of the People, voted two thousand nine hundred and fifty-eight for, and six against, that he should become uh, president of life or for life, mm-hmm. and that uh, this would be, this is realizing China's dream of national rejuvenation. What do you think?
2: Well, I'll tell you
0: what <laughs> I What think. could possibly go wrong with that, huh? <laughs> close election, huh? Close, close election, close. yeah. It was a 99.8%. <laughs> They're still looking for those three. There's that you know, there's, that there's no
2: opposition in communist China. Uh, that's the first thing to understand. They can call it an election, but in effect, it's a coronation. And uh, the striking thing in what you've said is that he's managed to make himself president for life. And that is something that uh, China has not had. Uh, They've incorporated Xi Jinping's thought into the Constitution, first person since Mao Zedong. Uh, He's one of the the most powerful leaders of China that we have seen since the Chinese Revolution in 1949. So what do we think about it? It's fairly extraordinary. We're dealing with a very strong
1: leader with very clear ideas.
0: Well, one of the... Can I I, just just give you my
1: take on this? Yeah. China used to have emperors who served for life. When Mao Zedong and the communists took over China in 49, Mao was stayed in power until his death in 1976. But he was so abusive and did so many bad things That Deng Xiaoping, who was the the successor to Mao, tried to limit that no person would have that kind of power. They would only have two terms, two, uh, I think, five-year terms, and then they would move on. And that was followed under two prior presidents of China. But now, this guy, President Xi, has taken it upon himself, and he recommended that the Congress give him this power, that he will be the new emperor. And so we're going back into a period that the Chinese were very afraid of getting into again, of having a permanent emperor ruler. I think this has really caught the attention of many in the West who thought China was not going back on this kind of a road. Well, many in China as well. There's a lot of opposition to it. Uh, I think that Xi
2: Jinping and his coterie have been surprised at the resistance to this move.
0: Well, but as, if 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 you're uh, if you're in opposition, do you get caught up in his anti-corruption campaign yes. and you end up being declared corrupt and what's he punished one hundred eighty thousand people? Oh, that's right. That's uh, right.
2: That is this. That's the best net they have. Yeah. If they uh, uh, corruption is endemic in Chinese culture, and so officials all the way up and down the line are constantly making backroom deals mm-hmm. and they can be they can they can be arrested effectively on the basis of this behavior and Xi Jinping is using that to eliminate his opponents and as you say he's he has arrested about 182,000 people that's a lot of people and they're frightened to death
0: well, there are a lot of theories that have been disproven. We talked about this last time. One of the theories was we leave China into the world trade system and they'll become more liberal, democratic, and more like us. Uh, the other theory, another theory was that the Internet uh, yeah. was going to make China more, uh, more liberal and open, and that
1: hasn't happened. I can remember um, we brought China into the WTO. The key vote in the Congress was, again, in 2000 when we gave China permanent MFN trade treatment. Most favored nation. Most favored nation trade treatment. Which gave them lower tariffs. Which gave them lower tariffs. Um, We would give them MFN one year at a time since 79, but we could always take it away. Once we give it to them permanently, that was an, an enormous gift. And part of the way they sold Congress on doing that was bringing China into the WTO would move China toward a more Western... A democratic system, and that they and they, I remember people saying the internet was going to make it poss- impossible to have a dictatorial kind of government in China. The Chinese have government and the party have co- learned quite well to control that 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 whole internet process and and they spend the enormous amount of money and resources doing it, but they do it. So we're dealing with a country
0: that was moving a little bit toward decentralization, maybe, under under Ding. And now it's going back to centralized uh, authority. And instead of the Internet being a freeing uh, thing, it's becoming an oppressive uh, technology, and they have something called social credit scores. Yeah,
2: they do. Um, And it's worth knowing that in Beijing alone, there are over 40,000 Internet policemen uh, people who track the internet, what people are doing and saying, and the social credit system, which is just recently put in, is a system that uh, in which people now have cameras in their homes, and of course on the streets, and they're monitored twenty-four-seven. And if you have an infraction, uh, like you know, even crossing the street in the wrong place or against the light, you can be that's noted. And if you get enough of these infractions, you begin to lose certain privileges and freedoms.
0: So it's 1984.
2: Here, here, large. Here, here,
0: here's <laughs> what they boast. They said, this credit system will, quote, allow the trustworthy to roam everywhere under heaven <laughs> while making it hard for the discredited to take single step.
2: And who decides what's trustworthy and what is? Who does
0: decide? Is this? Uh, is this she? Uh, it's
2: the oldest question in the book. Who guards the guardians?
1: Yeah. Yes, and it is she. And, his and the party. And the party. And the party. The party. The party. The party is. You have a one-party dictatorship. That's the Communist Party of China, and they're running the show. And Xi is both the president of China and the head of the party. So the uh, the party a population in China is a billion. How many members? One point two billion people. One
0: point two billion. How many? Maybe ma- a bit more. How many? How Maybe many people? One point three. Or 4. 1. 3. Uh, how, many, how many members of the party? Uh,
2: the, the party they say has eighty thousand people, which wow. makes it rather small. Yeah, in, that's in that's total tiny. Terms. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> it could be as much as a hundred thousand. But it's right in that neighborhood.
0: And so you don't. Uh, we, uh, well, well, let's 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 uh, let's 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 frame this in a certain way that I think could be interesting. There are people We're talking about China as a juggernaut, authoritarian society. They're coming after their own people. They're coming after us in terms of trade and presumably uh, military expansion, starting with the South China Sea. And then there are other people that say, well, we don't really worry about China. They're so dependent on us. Uh, fragment, t- China tends to fragment, uh, requires authoritarian rule, so, so relax and uh, <clears throat> nothing bad's going to happen.
2: Well, first of all, China doesn't depend on us uh, as much as that suggests. And China does have problems in its own region. It's surrounded by 14 countries. It has difficulties, border difficulties, territorial claims uh, with 12 of those countries. And it, it, you know, it doesn't play well with others. China has always had... So presumably
0: it is getting along with North Korea? It's getting (laughs) (laughs) along
2: somewhat. It controls more, to be be honest. Yeah, yeah. But it has problems on its periphery because when a lot of these borders were set, there were no agreed maps. In ancient times, they were just simply uh, areas of the periphery where Beijing's power was fading and and others had some power too. So there was a, a bit of a back and forth. So they do have difficulties in the region. They have not managed to affect any sense of common purpose or, or other common effort, mm-hmm. except they're trying to have people resist the United States and resist the West in general. That is their theme.
1: Yeah, my, my view again, and I stated it in our last program, you cannot understand what's happened here and where China's going and where it wants to go without understanding that they were the dominant power and the wealthiest country in the world and the dominant power in Asia for centuries. And that they were taken down by the West beginning with the Opium Wars in 1840s. They want back and they've developed a strategy to get back. And part of it was getting into the WTO and getting the investment and trade flows that would make them wealthy as our companies moved operations from here to China. And the Chinese then, once more of our companies got there, they would put pressure on these companies to move more operations to China, and to move R&D to China. We had a major CEO, John Chambers, Cisco, 2004. He says, we want to be a Chinese company. And he talked about how he was going to have his R&D and other factors moved into China to get more favor in becoming wealthier in China.
0: I went to business school with John. Did you? um, He's a a good old boy from West Virginia. I didn't know he had aspirations to be
1: Chinese. Yeah, it was just amazing. (laughs) You read these articles and you say, my God. Now, one more thing. Remember that when the Chinese came into the WTO... before that, it was the GATT and the WTO. But this was democratic, free-market economies. So suddenly, we're bringing an authoritarian, non-market economy into the WTO. And they've not abided by their WTO obligations. And they've used forced technology transfer to tell our companies, you want to get good treatment in China to become wealthier and get your CEO salaries up you better play ball well, and move more stuff The
0: Chinese claim they're voluntary. Yeah. They say that, if, well, they're voluntary because if you want to come into our country, you've got to do this, and if you don't want to do it, then you don't have to come in. Well, so let me... Let me I, <laughs> I,
1: I, I want to go back to just this. Okay. Because um, I was around watching all of this um, in 2000 and 2001 when this was going on. Um, Sperling... In the negotiations, Jean Sperling. Sperling, who was work, one of the key work, negotiators work on bringing China into the WTO, he was work, we, trade we representative we got, under Clinton. He was actually, I think, running the National Economic Council okay. under President Clinton. Yeah. Charlene Barshefsky was the trade representative, but they got a, they got an agreement by the Chinese that they would not do forced technology transfers, and that's part of their <laughs> WTO commitment. And the Chinese pressure the American companies so that They voluntarily, in order to make more money, transfer the technology. And they say, well, we're not really forcing your companies to do this. They're just doing it voluntarily. Hmm. Well, that's what Bob Lighthizer and this USTR and this president have gone after, saying that this is a complete violation of the understanding of what you came into the WTO, and we're going to do something about it.
2: There's a wider point here that's important, and that is that the argument produced uh, in two thousand and one and two, when people were talking about bringing China in, was that China would become more democratic mm-hmm. that it would become uh, together with the the internet would reinforce this process that China would adopt market elements and of course, this was an argument made by Kissinger, and it began when he Uh, was in China in the early 1970s to affect the so-called opening. So you had a growing sense, a discourse uh, in Washington, the Chamber of Commerce, certain members of Congress, certain parts of the media, all agreeing that this was the way to democratize China. Well, of course, it was profoundly wrong. who, Who believes that now? Well, now it's very interesting. We have just hit what people call an inflection point. We
0: talked about the inaugur- the the ascendance of Xi yes. as yeah. lifetime president was a wake-up call.
2: Right, it was a wake-up call. It was definitely a wake-up call, but we've now got to a point where people, uh, after China's aggression in the South China Sea, and after the, the, the clarity of, of what China is trying to do on the trade front, people now realize that this is an aggressive and dangerous uh, state. Let, let's go for some context here because we talk about the trade issue and it's real.
0: Technology yeah. transfer is real. But they also have other things that are in their, in their wheelhouse like the one belt, one road strategy, uh, China 2030, mm-hmm. not, uh, China 2030 strategy. They've also got a South China Sea, the, the maritime Silk Road, China. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And we talked earlier, there's, there's the three warfares the yeah. way they redefine what they're doing. what's the one belt one road
2: about one belt one road is a concept that xi jinping advanced uh, that would link china with uh, india the near east south asia uh, europe and it would facilitate the movement of chinese exports uh, by road and rail all the way into europe Mm -hmm. it involves the construction of roads and bridges and railroads in order to move all of this these exports, and it requires China to affect relationships with businesses across the Near East and South Asia. So you have a lot of businesses which are now being offered financing by China, management by China, uh, in order to create this system. And a lot of these businesses are resisting because they don't like the idea of having a foreign power so heavily involved in their enterprises
0: i think we talked about this before they bought the port of Piraeus in, in greece essentially
2: yeah they did that they, they bought Hambantota in uh, sri lanka and so on but uh that's one belt one road and it is a very dramatic it's an enormous concept it's 50 times the size of the marshall plan
0: Which was what? Which
2: was a program that the United States uh, initiated after World War II to rebuild Europe devastated by the war. Mm -hmm. This is a huge project. But in the end, China would control a lot of these businesses and certainly be very influential in these local governments. And and
0: the point you've made is that how are they paying for this? They're paying for this with a $4.5 trillion the, dollar trade surplus. See, yeah, they they're, putting poor, a, they're, they're putting that cash to They're use. putting
1: a trillion dollars into this. Is that, the, is that the total number? A trillion dollars? Yeah. Okay. Now, where do they get that money? Since China joined the WTO, the United States has run trade deficits with China of $4.5 trillion. Dollars. So this lopsided economic relationship that we have with China is permitting them to expand their political influence through projects like this and their economic influence, but also permitting them to strengthen themselves militarily. Mm -hmm. Because when you transfer technology and industrial capacity to your opponent at your own expense, they can then pump money into their military capabilities, and they've been doing that. Well, one of my more. Well, I want to come back to just yeah. this inflection okay. point. Yeah. I was a big fan of George Kennan, who was a famous American diplomat, who was the guy who first put together the containment strategy when Russia was expansive. He wrote, after he World wrote War the II. memo after. Uh... Yes, he wrote the long telegram and yeah. then the foreign affairs article. Yeah. 8,000 words. And he saw what was going on. I've always been hoping there would be a wake up moment in this country to realize that the policies that we have been following toward China are not in our national interest and will will hurt us in the long run. I think when President Xi went after and made himself the emperor, I think it really impacted people in the West to say, what do we really have going on here? So it was kind of like the wake-up call that George Cannon gave us in 1946 and 1947. There's a rethinking of this whole China relationship going on in the United States now. I couldn't agree more. I think you're absolutely right, Pat.
2: And it is, it is a, a very dramatic moment in reassessing our relations with China.
0: One of my economist friends, one of the, of the more wonky sort, says, well, it's really not $4.5 because there's a lot of intercompany transfers. He says it's probably only more like $2 trillion. And I, I said, well... That's a lot of money. <laughs> 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 can just, okay, right. Let's a tree argue in about trillion here, trillion there. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is something we need to we we need a lot of people to wake up yeah, at, that's, about. That's yeah. Right. Uh, what's one, one, one Belt One Road South China Sea or the Maritime Silk Road? Let's talk about what that Well The Maritime is. Silk
2: Road is simply the uh, maritime version version of okay. the One Belt One Road, and it has uh, a series of ports what China calls its string of pearls uh, across the Indian Ocean. uh, They use much better labels for these things. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) they really do. do. (laughs) These are places where China has facilities, port facilities, docking, uh, bunkering, and so on. And and their (laughs) ships can move across the Indian Ocean and the Arabian Sea uh, to move goods and services that way.
0: And when they have this established, this is uh, how will they use this? I mean, is it a way to not be dependent on anybody else? You to won't have goods to, and your shipments? energy
1: won't have to be going through the streets of Malacca for one thing. Okay. Yeah, you know, that frees them from that concern. Um, the second thing it, it, it is to permit them to export more uh, into these into these countries.
0: So they're creating their own export market. They are. Abroad.
1: And they get political influence in these countries, which is an enormous importance to the Chinese. And the most, another point is that when you uh,
2: create these port facilities, they become facilities that can be used by the Chinese Navy. They can store fuel, uh, ammunition, uh, refurbishing, and uh, supply and repair in all of these places. Well, that brings us to the South China
0: Sea strategy. I, there was recently there was a, an announcement that China's put j, jamming gear in a couple of the islands, and they've been claiming territory that otherwise has been considered international waters. And they've been doing it by, I guess, since two thousand fourteen, they've moved sand and on the rocks and reefs, paving them over with concrete and creating islands that uh, that they then have. Uh, uh, done things like uh, put ten thousand foot runways in place and hangars for fighter aircraft, and and uh, they've they've got plans. So, this what is, do we, this are, are we paying most, attention to this? Yeah, what do we well, do about certainly
2: it? some of us are paying attention yeah. to it. It is one of the most outrageous and egregious violations of international law and precedent that any of us have seen in a long while. Uh, China believes that because its fishermen and others many thousands, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, uh, visited these little islands in the South China Sea and left bits of pottery and so on, that these islands can properly be claimed by Beijing. Um, If that were true, then the United States could claim, you know, the Gulf of Mexico, the French would own the Atlantic Ocean and so on and so forth uh it is a it is a straight out violation of current international law and the issue was considered by the united nations uh convention of the law of the sea court mm-hmm. and the chinese were found to be without any foundation for these claims meanwhile uh beijing simply ignored the, the court's findings i mean just flat out ignored them so didn't matter what the court said. They were skating right by the rule of law, and they were onto a, uh, a set of claims which, for them, uh, provides them with what uh, they call sovereignty over the South China Sea. Mm. A modest proposal. It's only 100,000 square miles
1: of ocean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, the, the, uh, having As a young man, I was in the State Department, and I worked on the uh, Law of the Sea Convention which is the law that governs these kinds of things. The United States has never ratified the Law of the Sea Convention, but we we should. But we've said that we accept it as, as international law. And we abide by it. And we abide by it. Now, when the Chinese made these claims, the Philippines actually brought the case to the Law of the Sea Tribunal, and they won it. But then the, the Chinese squeezed the Philippines economically. And you don't see the China, they don't see the Philippines raising big concerns about this matter right now. And they were I've more, also heard they're they were bri- the, they're bribing their politicians. Well i they squeeze them economically okay, in whatever. different ways. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so um but I think it would strengthen our hand if we if we did ratify uh that law of the Sea Convention so that we're party to this whole convention. It was negotiated we, we took the lead in putting the thing together. I've always thought we should... Uh, and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee has reported it out of committee a couple times, but we've never taken the time to get it done on the Senate floor. It has to be approved by the Senate. Mm. On the question of the Philippines and uh,
2: bribery and so on, what the Chinese have actually done is offered to build a railroad from Manila down through Mindanao to connect uh, the capital with parts of the outlying areas of the Philippines. And the president, Mr. Duterte, is very grateful for that. And for that, he's prepared to be flexible on Chinese claims of Philippine islands. Going back to your earlier point about um, these hardened uh, runways and and bunkers and so on, China has been uh, trying to create a string of military assets across the South China Sea that would, in effect, block American naval uh, task forces from, from sailing from Japan down to the Malaccan Straits. That's what they're trying to do. And They put in radar and intercept and jamming devices, as you mentioned, which are designed to block the U.S. fleet from moving from the north to the south. And what the uh, Pacific fleet is doing is increasing the tempo of what they call freedom of navigation exercises in which the U.S. fleet moves through that area hmm. and uh, does not acknowledge Chinese claims to these territories or any prohibitions. So do we have a strategy to deal with that? Is it, is I think it, we uh... do. Uh, I think the Navy certainly does. Yeah. And I think that Trump has been uh, particularly, or much more receptive than Obama was in listening to what the Navy would like to do and agreeing to it. Uh, So we we do have a strategy. And of course, one of the major issues here is Taiwan. Uh, We're increasing our relations with Taiwan. Trump signed the Taiwan Travel Act, which allows US officials, senior officials, to travel to Taiwan and have conversations with their leadership which was prohibited before. Hmm. Uh, We're, I believe, we're in process of arranging naval visits to Taiwanese ports. I don't know that for sure. I'm not sure that's been settled, but that's the intention. Uh, And I think when we have done those things, the Chinese will react strongly. So Taiwan's going to become an issue for us going forward.
0: Well, how does this square with talking to somebody else about this and they said well you really don't have to worry about china because they it tends to fragment and uh, uh you know they're not expeditionary they haven't re- really been out conquering faraway lands now that's been their <clears> tradition <throat> under
1: well okay we gotta laugh out loud yeah. here iPad. Right, pat well you know that <laughs> why like, is that why is that dead wrong <laughs> well you know that korea be, before 1894 okay was was controlled by china as was taiwan and um, the Japanese, as part of that whole fragmentation that happened to China in that, what they call their century of humiliation, the Japanese went to war with the, Jap- with the Chinese in 1894, and they took Korea and Taiwan away from China. So this idea that the Chinese don't expand, they, um, why were the Vietnamese always so concerned about the China? Because China was moving influence down into Southeast Asia. Um, they haven't gone on and colonized Latin America and Africa, but they're essentially using their economic influence now to gain more and more political control in these countries. Yeah, they're making big investments in both yeah, places. in both yeah. countries. <clears throat> yeah. So this idea, they, they are very subtle in the way that, that, that they behave, and they are using their economic power to gain more and more political influence in these various countries around the world. I want to come back to one more thing, because Mm -hmm. I think it's so important to this discussion. When we brought China into the WTO, I saw an article by Larry Summers, who was, I think, the Treasury Secretary then, and he said that wasn't such a big deal because we were already giving China MFN trade treatment, although we could always take it away. Here is an article that appeared in the Wall Street Journal the day after the House voted to give China PNTR, and our corporations and the. When was this the public? This, this vote took place in 2000.
0: Okay, so this is 18 years ago. This is 18 years ago, yeah. the
1: vote. The House passed it. It was a narrow vote. The Wall Street Journal, and, and it was all said we were going to get more exports to China, reduce the trade deficit, which was then at $80 billion. It's now $370 billion. The article in the Wall Street Journal. Wall Street Journal says, even before the vote was cast yesterday, and while the it it, it says it was all about the, the companies were saying it was about exporting, and while the debate in Washington focused mainly on the probability lift for U.S. export to China, many U.S. multinationals have something different in mind. This deal is about investment, not export said Joe Quinlan, an economist with Morgan Stanley. Uh, Foreign investment is about to overtake U.S. exports by the primary means by which U.S. companies deliver goods to China. The company sold it. That this was going to be about exports. It was really about investment. And when they invest in China, then they become part of rebuilding China's comprehensive national power, which is what the Chinese wanted. Now, I, I want to, if I could, as you noted, I was on the China Commission. The China Commission is a bipartisan think tank set up by the Congress. In law, they passed a law to create this commission to get bipartisan advice. It has issued eighteen reports. This is the two thousand and seventeen report to China. It's at www.uscc.gov. And these, which will also be on our website, which, which is very <clears> important <throat> yeah. for people we'll to know that this there, is yeah. a resource because this group, of bipartisan people, they get intelligence briefings, they travel to China, they read. How many, read pa- it how many pages is that? Huh? Seven, eight,
0: six, seven. This, a... this is
1: 2017.
0: Okay, and it's okay. He's holding up. Okay.
1: Yeah, and um, and it's former it's former senators, it's the former Council of Economic Advisors, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, and it's guys that were. Uh, experts in our military, were military attachés in Beijing, bipartisan, almost every report has been unanimous.
0: You want to read that clip Yeah, I just want to or... read this.
1: <laughs> because th- this is what people don't understand. Yeah. China has laid out an ambitious whole, of, this is from their 2017 report, whole of a government plan to achieve dominance in advanced technology. This state-led approach utilizes government financing and regulations High market access and investment barriers—you can't sell into China you have to, uh, for foreign firms. Overseas acquisitions—they're mm-hmm. now buying key, acquis- uh, key technologies, both here and in Europe—and talent recruitment—and in some cases, industrial espionage to create globally competitive firms. So, he, and this is what Bob Lightheiser and USTR have also identified in their recent report to the Congress. They're saying, the administration is saying the same thing, and we have to develop a strategy to deal with this problem.
0: Well, we've got a, we've got a increasingly aggressive China, yes. authoritarian, with a strategy, lots of cash to implement it, going all over the world. Uh, I want to talk about China's but, weaknesses, but Bill. If,
1: but why are they increase, increasingly? What gives them the ability to be increasingly aggressive? Well, we gave them all
0: our money. <laughs> we gave them their strength, and we borrowed to buy their stuff. Yes. And now we're in debt, and they've got the money, and they're building all this yeah, stuff. Is that the equation? Exactly. I think you that's it. I, <laughs> <laughs> I try to learn if I can. Uh, uh-huh. The, you know, that, just parenthetically. I, one of the reasons we weren't crazy, the United States after World War II was the only economy in the world that was viable. Japan was in rubble, Hiroshima. Uh, Germany laid low, everybody. We were the only manufacturing economy in the world that mattered. And we we had the Marshall Plan. We built these, it was in our interest really to build up Japan, build up Europe. Uh, but it was hugely, we were hugely protected from competition. I think it was 30 years from. The end of the World War Two to uh, 1976, we had wage growth of like like 100 percent, and GDP was growing like mad. We were protecting protected from from imports, and then we set up systems, these trading systems, which we are now saying are a big problem to help them. I think we've done that.
1: Yes, we, have, we <laughs> now have. we're saying, "Oh
0: my God, we yeah. got to reverse this." Yeah, because we've run a trade deficit every every year for 42 straight
1: years. Yes, so. An increasingly that, large trade deficit yeah. every year, essentially. For, okay, for quickly, we years. talked
0: about this last time. Why do trade deficits matter?
1: Matter. When you run a trade deficit, as Warren Buffett put out in his famous article in Fortune magazine, you're sending the other guy dollars. He's sending you the goods. economists will say, we're giving them slips of paper. We're getting real asset. We're getting goods. But those dollars we're sending them are claims on the U.S. economy. So the foreigners have been investing the dollars into our treasuries as a way of keeping the dollar overvalued and continuing their... Uh, They've got about a trillion three. In uh, treasuries. About a
0: trillion three right now. Yeah, treasuries. see, they
1: buy, they buy our yeah. treasuries as a way of yeah. keeping the dollar overvalued and keeping the trade deficits going. But now what they're using their dollars for is to buy high-tech com- te- high-tech companies in the United States. That's why the Congress is in the middle of strengthening the whole foreign investment, strengthening, because the Chinese are over here buying key technologies, and Congress is getting more and more concerned about it. President Trump, in his uh, discussions with the Chinese, may restrict Chinese investment using the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. The Bob Lighthizer and the, and the Treasury Department have discussed this. So that's, trade deficits matter because, as Warren Buffett put in that article, the trade deficit is going to sell your country out from under you. What used to be yours is now going to be owned by the people that you run well, your trade deficit. Well, and with.
0: I think the larger point is that if you people say, well, there's a trade deficit between New York and California or vice versa, <laughs> but that's not exactly what's going on here. As Stefan's Steph written about <clears throat> something called the three warfares. Yes. And so three or four warfares are the next shooting war is not likely to be a shooting war. And China's engaged in a much broader strategy.
2: Right. That's exactly right. <clears throat> because of the media and current sensitivities, uh, a nuclear arsenal is almost completely useless these days. When's the last time somebody used a nuclear weapon? So what you have instead is a concentration by the Chinese on what are called non-kinetic weapons. That is, weapons that do not explode, and the three warfares are uh, are, are the most elegant and sophisticated of these. Essentially, the three warfares is a dynamic, three-dimensional. War fighting process that constitutes war by other means uh, it's flexible, it's nuanced it uh, it's innovative, and uh, it proceeds in a dimension which is quite separate from the way that we've been trained to think about war. Our military academies West Point, Annapolis, and so on uh, think about wars you know, the way we did about Vietnam, you have to control their hearts and minds. And from that, you'll gain influence. The Chinese are so- essentially saying that that's not what this is about. Um, the uh, three warfares envisions results in a much longer period of time. Um, the, imp- the impacts are measured by different criteria. And the goals seek to alter the environment in a way that renders kinetic engagement irrational. So that, for example, if the U.S. wanted to have uh, naval access to a port in the South China Sea, the Chinese would use the three warfares to alter the environment through media uh, by explaining to the local population that this was not a good thing. They would use intimidation by threatening to boycott that that country, Uh, and they would uh, mount legal challenges. And those are the three warfares. And you use them in combination, they are a formidable weapon. If the object of war is to acquire resources and influence and territory, and to project national will, China's three warfares is war by other means. Mm-hmm. And it's something we need to come to grips with. Uh, there are some ways that you can do it. You need to shine a bright light on what they're doing. You need to challenge them and establish courts. And you need to resist uh, specific efforts that, they're, that they've, they've undertaken. But those are the three warfares, very effective. Hmm. We need to wrap up. As always,
0: we've only scratched the surface of this, but that, that, that's a pretty alarming note to end on, but I
1: sobering. That's good. Pat? Yeah, I just uh, wanted to last meant, uh, add to that. Um, the China Commission, again, has said we should not let state-owned enterprises from China invest in the United States. Uh, the well, Ch- that, that, the state-owned enterprises from China are owned and controlled by the Communist Party. You know that they're now requiring the Communist Party apparatus to even be on American companies that are in China? So they want, but anyway, let's come back to their investment here. If you have a state owned enterprise investing here and then it can play in our political system because it's incorporated in the United States, doesn't that give the Chinese more and more ability to influence our political process? So that we don't come up with strategies to stop the hemorrhaging that's going on in terms of technology and jobs in this country.
0: Well, guys, uh, we've got we've got work to do. Yeah, we do. (laughs) Thank you for all this uh, very useful information. I guess the first step to dealing with the problem is realizing you have a problem. You realize you have a problem. And we have a problem. Yeah. So thanks. You need, seven a, you need an integrated approach. Thank you, Bill, for yeah. Putting, yeah, Bill. putting this on. Yeah, I mean, good. this is
2: a really important issue, and you're right on it. This is very good. So
0: I, I was right. This is not the end of our series. We'll take, <laughs> we'll take a break for a while, and then we'll come back to talk about China Part 3. <laughs> thank you, Bill. Okay. Thank you very thank much. You and Bill. Thank you for listening. Well, that was sobering. In the past 40 years, China has been engaged in a national strategy to again become the world's greatest empire. Uh, During that time, its economy has grown from 1 20th the size of ours to uh, the same size today, largely because of favorable trade deals that we made for them. Just recently, they anointed a president for life, in effect creating a new emperor, uh, saying that this represents the rejuvenation of the real China, uh, in the economic front, we know about the aluminum and steel issues, but the real issues are technology, forced technology transfers and what they're doing with infrastructure around the world, things like the One Belt, One Road Initiative, where they're spending $1 trillion to control local ports and railroads and uh, bridges in, uh, in Europe and around the world. Uh, and now, more recently, in the last, last couple of years, it's claimed South China Sea is its own and they're building islands in the South China Sea that, uh, from scratch on top of reefs, and they're putting airstrips on them that will handle fighter jets. Meanwhile, back in America, our media and our political class are obsessing about a bankrupt Russia and Stormy Daniels. Isn't it time we got serious about our real problems?
1: Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes.
2: Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. And Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to amazon.com/apply. That's amazon.com/apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.